Well, friends, it is good to have you with us together on Radio Pulpit and Radio Kelp, Cape Pulpit, not Kelp Pulpit, that would be ridiculous, Radio <laughs> Cape Pulpit this morning, uh, together with uh, myself, Mark Penrith, and Tipo Pitzel. Oh, I'm tripping over all my words this morning. Tipo Pitzel, my partner in crime extraordinaire. Uh, we're both from Crystal Park Baptist Church, Benoni, where we serve the local church as staff caring for the souls of men and changing the light bulbs as and when necessary. Shout out to everyone in our neighborhood, Benoni, recognizing that the uh, audience of Radio Pulpit and Radio Cape Pulpit is much broader than the great and glorious city of Benoni. It extends right from the north of South Africa. We have listeners at, I think it's Umsina. Um, I, I'm thinking particularly of Thomas Trollope, who regularly listens into the show, um, all the way down to Cape Town and uh, friends that are joined uh, to us. Uh, I think of Michael Swain from 4SA. We have we have listeners across the breadth of South Africa and even internationally. And so shout out to all of those who might be listening in, including Roland Eskenazi in Brussels this morning. Listener, Table Talk is your opportunity to join in the conversation. We frequently do questions and answers during the show this morning. We are going to be concentrating particularly on a subject I love. Leadership development. Tepo contacted me last night and said, Mark, we need to talk about leadership development within the context of the local church. It's a hot button issue. Uh, it's a topic that uh, many of our local churches need to engage in. And so this morning we're going to talk about the how, the who, the what, the when, the where. Um, I'm running out of uh, W's of leadership development inside of local churches. As we speak, engage with us, send through questions or comments that you might have on your mind. How might you do that, you might ask? Well, WhatsApp and Telegram would be great places to start. Get those voice notes rolling in. The number is 082-657-2729. And uh, we look forward to engaging with you through that format. If you are listening right now on live stream, OpenView, DSTV, uh, you can join the Facebook video stream uh, and drop comments into the Facebook show notes. Uh, we will see that directly in front of us as we are all talking. If you are in the Twitterverse, the handle to engage with us on in what's it, 120 characters is at 657am. And... Um, you can also speak to us, uh, you can call in, you can talk to us live on air. I I'm actually really looking forward to our first call-in listener. Uh, the number is 012, write this down, 012-334-1322. This morning we are talking about leadership development. I'd be interested to hear how you do leadership development at your church. What works and what doesn't work? Uh, we are looking forward to engaging with you on this really important topic. On the controls this morning, pressing all the buttons and making sure that the lights stay on is our co-laborer in the ministry. Rissy, morning brother, I can't see you because I'm in the studio at Crystal Park Baptist Church, but I know that you are working furiously at the radio pulpit offices in Pretoria. Right now, we are going to turn to the state of our nation each Friday. We consider how South Africa is doing and how the discussion is going between 
the church and the state with our friend Michael Swain. Michael is the executive director of 4SA. He studied law abroad. He has been successful in business and is the co-founder of the His People Every Nation church movement in South Africa. And he stays in the mother city, Cape Town. How is the weather in great and glorious Cape Town this morning, Michael? <laughs> I, think, I think you call it Kelp Town for a good reason, because <laughs> we also have fantastic surf here, and there is often a bit of kelp involved, but otherwise it's a glorious place to live. Glorious. Um, uh, I'm sure. I'm, I'm, I'm actually at some stage can't wait until I have the opportunity to visit Cape Town with my family again on holiday. It is absolutely a beautiful city. But that's not why you dial in <laughs> to Radio Pulpit on a Friday uh, to promote tourism in the city of Cape Town. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our discussion in terms of what's happening in the legislative environment uh, in South Africa. And particularly, we're going to be discussing the Domestic Violence Amendment Bill, which was passed by the National Council of Provinces uh, on Wednesday, the 1st of uh, September. So, I mean, we're talking about Two days ago, this is this is hot to press. Uh, if you follow our discussions, this is something which is at the thin edge of the blade. And this bill has been referred back to the National Assembly for concurrence. Um, and so, Michael, you know, t tell us a little bit about the Domestic Violence Amendment Bill. Um, what is it, and how does it affect religious freedom? Um, why does why is domestic violence suddenly a religious freedom issue? This is um, very much part of government's pushback against violence, particularly against women. As you know, that's a real scourge in this nation. And so this is one of the priority bills. And it's a good question that you ask, because, you know, what exactly does it have to do with religious freedom other than for us to say, absolutely, we need to do whatever we can to prevent and to oppose any form of domestic violence. But what was interesting in this bill was that for the first time ever, they added in the category of spiritual abuse. And that is something that has never been defined before in law. And therefore, obviously, that's a very, very significant and important precedent, particularly because it included the term spiritual abuse as a form of domestic violence. And so you obviously immediately have to ask the question, well, what actually is the definition of spiritual abuse? And that was obviously why we became involved in this bill, because depending upon how a bill uh, or how a term is defined in law, obviously sets a precedent for how it may be interpreted in future legislation or even within the court systems. Uh, so as we know, Section 15 of our Constitution protects every person's right to not only uh, live out their faith, um, but to do so even if their faith might seem bizarre, irrational, or illogical to other people. And so, you know, to that end, you don't want a broad definition of spiritual abuse so that literally, which is one of the original examples given in the definition, you could be having a family conversation around a kitchen table between two members of the family who may be of different faiths, and then one person says something that the other person sees as ridiculing or insulting that person. And then suddenly it becomes spiritual abuse and it's seen as a form of domestic violence. So, wow. Th th uh, uh, Michael, just, 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 just to come in here, um, 
This is a topic which, uh, in actual fact, myself and a number of friends are, are currently engaging on. When I, when I saw your email come through, I, I was quite excited because uh, we're currently working through a podcast of a, a very large church in the States which disintegrated um, primarily because of a form of spiritual abuse uh, that, that was perpetrated amongst senior leadership. It was just very clearly there was a narcissistic leader and things got really messy and really ugly over time. And, and so uh, a number of friends have been engaging on social media around this topic over a period of time. As it came through, though, I, I mean, a, a lot of my synapses started firing. You know, I, I think of of the news over the last uh, couple of years as we've been speaking about some really terrible forms of spiritual abuse um, that we've seen perpetrated all over South Africa, kind of like, you know, tents that have popped up and people that have been eating snakes and um, chewing on rat's tails and drinking petrol and all kinds of other ridiculous things. How does this new definition affect the concerns raised by the CRL uh, Rights Commission and others regarding abuses that have been taking place within the religious community over this period of time? Well, it's obviously important to note that this particular definition only applies to the Domestic Violence Act, assuming that it does indeed go through and get passed in its current form. But as you know, the challenge that we faced and has been faced by the religious community over many years now has been that the CRL has been very active in raising their concerns about what you have called spiritual abuse, which actually isn't spiritual abuse. Um, it, it, it's actually crime. <laughs> the, the, these are criminals committing criminal acts. Um, you know, if, if you sexually abuse somebody or if you steal money or if you you know force people to do something you assault them in some way that is not spiritual abuse that's simply a crime crime is a crime is a crime whether you're a, a pastor a, a, a policeman a, a postman or a politician uh, a crime is a crime is a crime and it's never been acceptable uh, and it's never been a defense in law that you can somehow raise your religious freedom rights and say well you know because I believe that what I'm doing God told me to no sir uh, that is not the case. You should be, I believe, uh, head up and charged appropriately and prosecuted. And of course, yes, you should have due process. And of course, often what we see is that th people are almost found guilty, you know, before they've had the opportunity to even make their side of the story known. And so again, in, in this very contentious space, there has been a big push uh, for the state to intervene and particularly for the state to come in and regulate religion. The CRL's version of this was to set up some form of peer review mechanism whereby uh, they ultimately would be appointing a team of spiritual leaders who would then decide what is or is not uh, acceptable in terms of spirituality or spiritual practice. But of course, that again is a completely, um, completely contrary to the fact that we are allowed to believe whatever it is that we want to believe. I mean, you can believe in the man on the moon if you want to, you know, um, and as long as you don't do something illegal or unlawful, you can believe whatever it is you like. So the issue here is, of course, that uh, when you start to get a category of spiritual abuse, if it is defined, let's say, from our perspective, wrongly or too broadly, then what has happened in the past, and we've certainly seen this happening with hate speech, for example, is that it starts off narrow and then gradually 
it broadens and broadens and broadens until ultimately it starts to literally be used in legislation and written into legislation in a way that subsequently turns out to be unlawful. I mean, that was the definition of hate speech that we had in the Papuda, uh, which, as you know from our previous conversations, was recently declared to be unlawful and amended by the Constitutional Court. And yet there it was in law for some 20 odd years. Um, so it is so important when it comes to defining something, particularly for the first time, that we make sure that we get the definition right and that it therefore doesn't have the opportunity to be extended into areas which potentially uh, could be very harmful to religious freedom in the future. And that's what we for us do. We watch out for these things so that we can make sure that our religious freedom rights are protected as best as we possibly can. You know, Michael, I think one of the advantages of speaking to you regularly and over and over again is that I have really grown to appreciate that what you what you said in your in your last couple of sentences is so true. These definitions really matter and they really matter when they are first defined because there is an exponential, there are exponential ramifications from whatever definition is settled on in terms of the legal, the legalese that the country adopts. And so I guess with that in mind, is Foyce a happy with the new definition in this particular bill? And if not, are you already at the stage where you are proposing something different? No, we, we absolutely are. And what we do, of course, is whenever a piece of legislation comes out in the form of comments, for example, the Department of Justice sent out the Puda Amendment Bill, and then, of course, when it goes through the process, uh, particularly now, for example, the hate speech bill, which we can maybe talk about next week, uh, when that comes out, that's already gone from the Department of Justice, and it's now before the National Assembly, for example, and now there's opportunity for further comment every time there's an opportunity for comment is a time for us to engage in what is our uh, rightful democratic process and we have the rights and i believe we should as responsible citizens understand what's going on but obviously not everybody can spend their time as we do watching this space and so that's what we do we specifically look out for anything in legislation which we think could potentially infringe upon our religious freedom rights because obviously you know we live in a rule of law and to the measure that your rights are limited in law, well, that's a problem for you because it makes it more difficult to live out your faith, to speak about it, to express it, and so on. So when it came to this particular a definition of spiritual abuse, when it was introduced for the first time, we proposed a different and much narrower definition than the definition that was originally put into the bill. And one of the things that we also do is we work with all members of parliament, um, all different parties, and much of the legislation that is written is actually ultimately decided in its final format in a committee stage where you have a multi-party committee. In this, in this uh, case, it was the Justice uh, Portfolio Committee. And when this spiritual abuse definition was raised, uh, initially uh, there was a, a, a say, well, do we need it at all? And the chairman said, yes, we do. And then, uh, fortunately, uh, Steve Swart, who's the MP for the ACDP, who was aware of our definition, said, well, here's a definition that I think we should put forward, and the committee then accepted it. So the definition which 4SA had actually drafted was, in fact, included in this domestic violence amendment bill. 
And so we now have a definition that we are very happy with because by the grace of God, we were effectively able to draft it and have it included in the legislation. And it is obviously much narrower. Um, in fact, if anything, it, 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 is a, it is a very positive thing. It, it basically means that, for example, you, you, you cannot um, start a complaint against somebody um, which constitutes harm caused to the complainant, for example, by preventing the complainant from exercising their constitutional rights to freedom. And that includes the manifestation of their beliefs. And you can't, for example, uh, manipulate somebody's uh, religious or spiritual convictions and beliefs to justify or rationalize abusing them. So it really gives like greater religious freedom in the domestic context and, and potentially does, yes, indeed, prevent a situation whereby somebody who perhaps, say, has converted um, from one faith to another or from no faith to a faith from then being abused by members of their family for that choice and their decision. So it actually ends up being a greater protection for religious freedom. And again, I think it just very much is an example of how important it is that we do look after these things, that we do keep a watchful eye over them, and also that uh, we engage in the, in the legislative process, in our democratic process, and of course the benefit as well of having for example, uh, representation in the form of the ACDP, who are in these committees, who are actually able at maybe key moments to uh, bring an influence. Well, I, you know, just listening to you and uh, considering the kinds of conversations that we've had over the, the last few weeks, it sounds like there've been some significant step forwards in terms of uh, in terms of wins, victories um, for the freedom of religion in South Africa. And I know that you're on the cutting edge of pushing that, lobbying for that, uh, involved with legislative change. Um, and so thank you very much for the promotion that you're doing. Uh, maybe if I can give a pitch for 4SA um, and, and just recognize that there will be listeners right now who want to find out more about the issues that affect their religious freedoms and they want to know a little bit more about the work that freedom of religion does in South Africa. Uh, for those of, of you who are interested in knowing more about uh, these issues, um, and and the conversation between church and state in South Africa, uh, please do go to the Freedom of South Africa website. That's www.4sa.org.za. And there you can join uh, 4SA as an organization. You can uh, get involved with their social media activities, find out information. They, they produce uh, videos. There are frequently links to petitions that people can sign. Uh, it really is a great resource. And I do want to say thank you, Michael, for joining us again uh, this Friday. I, I hope that you have a good weekend, and I look forward to speaking to you again next week. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you always for having me on the show. Much appreciated. God bless, brother. Well, friends, as we now go into the, the second part of our show, myself and uh, Sepul Pitzel, who is sitting in the office right next door to me, um, uh, we are going to be talking about leadership development within the local church. Now, this topic affects you, whether you are a senior pastor, uh, priest in charge of an Anglican community, or I don't know, presbyteros uh, in, a, um, uh, in a Presbyterian church, uh, whatever function you hold in a church, uh, this topic affects you. How do you go about developing leaders in a local church? And, and we certainly are going to speak directly to pastors uh, and engage with pastors, 
But if you're a member of a church, friends, leadership development affects you too. Whether you are wanting to be developed in terms of leadership capabilities and capacities in your local church, um, or, or whether you recognize that the development of leaders is so key to your own personal spiritual vitality that you need to take this topic seriously. Uh, the bottom line is uh, this topic is for you. And so for the next hour and a half, myself and Tepo are going to be talking about the development of leaders within the context of local churches. And I, I do encourage you to enjoy, no, not to enjoy, to uh, join the conversation. You can do that in, in a whole lot of ways. Um, you, you, can, you can engage with us on WhatsApp and Telegram. Uh, get voice notes rolling in uh, 082-657-2729. If you're serving in the capacity of a leader, if you are moving towards a leadership development, I'd be interested in hearing that. Um, I'd love to hear the kinds of opportunities that are available for leadership uh, in your local church, whether that be elders, deacons, uh, committees, uh, heads of departments, uh, youth leaders, whatever that might be. Um, I'd be very interested to hear how leadership works within the context of your local church. If you are listening to us on Facebook, if you are watching the live stream, you can just comment right down below. Looking forward to hearing from you. Uh, and we will bring those comments into the show. If you're on Twitter in the tweeting universe, um, the handle is at 657AM. And right now, if you are on Twitter, I'd love to hear if this thing works. I don't think I've ever had a tweet, a live tweet. Um, you know, just drop the handle at 657AM in Twitter. I'm looking forward to bringing your engagement into the show. Just say has it or hello or hi. Um, it would be good to hear from you. Uh, and then and then lastly, we have a studio line. You're able to dial directly into the studio. The number is 12 334 And we are looking forward to hearing from you. So as we start out and begin the discussion, um, Tepo, as we, as we begin to engage on the topic, when you think of leadership development, brother, what do you think of? Let's not make the same mistake as the last time. <laughs> no, no judgment, no judgment. But unmute so, your mic. <laughs> so, so leadership development is basically, um, so, so basically when it comes to a church, um, I remember somebody making this, Now I'm not good with remembering who's, who said what, <laughs> but somebody said this. Um, initially, when, when, when the church is run, the pastor is like, a CEO, right? So the pastor does everything. The pastor is the preaching and pulpit. The pastor is a counselor. The pastor is the youth leader. The pastor is the person who makes sure that the chairs are set. The pastor does everything, right? Now, leadership development helps the pastor free up his time to do the things that he's called to do. And primarily, if you look at Acts, um, you look at the deacons and what they, they were called to do, and that was to free up the pastor to read scripture, pray. And that's basically um, what leadership, that, that's, that's the initial thought that comes to mind when it comes to leadership development, is to free up the pastor to do what the pastor is called to do, not to make him lazy, though. 
<laughs> Not to make him lazy. <laughs> I have yet to. I, I haven't met many, although I'm sure there are some lazy pastors out there. I'm just haven't been exposed to many of them. Um, most of the pastors that I know are running around frantically trying to get what needs to get done from one Sunday to the next, sweating bullets because of all the many tasks that a local church presents to them. And and you are right. Uh, pastors are called not primarily to change light bulbs, which is kind of like a standard joke that I open the, 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 the show with, uh, taking care of the souls of men and changing light bulbs just because of the disparity of what pastors end up actually doing. But pastors are primarily called to take care of the souls of men and they do that by teaching, they do that by shepherding their souls, they do that by exercising oversight uh, of the community that the Lord God has entrusted to them. When I think of leadership development, I, I definitely don't think of the pastor as a CEO um, at all. I, I mean, just that hasn't been my exposure to, to pastoring. Um, but I do remember arriving at Crystal Park about 11 years ago, and I arrived to a church of, um, of five saints, five godly uh, women. Um, I remember them all. Their faces are in front of me, Elube and Lindiwe and Machi and Molly and uh, um, uh, Martha. And uh, I just remember the, the, um, the massive amounts of work which I needed to do um, to prepare even for the very first Sunday. Uh, I mean, I needed to... I needed to clean the church. There were, there were literally five people there that first Sunday, and so there was nobody really to do much. There was no one to do anything. And, and so I was vacuuming the floor together with my wife. I mean, it's not like, a, it's not like I was by myself or alone. Uh, Liesl was right next to me, but, but we vacuumed. We washed the windows. We set out the chairs. We set out whatever sound equipment. I don't, actually, we, we had no sound equipment or projection equipment back then. Um, but, but we set everything out. I, I prepared a sermon. Um, we set out tea and coffee. Uh, when people arrived, I was on door duty. Um, I opened the service. I read the scripture. I led the worship. I preached the sermon, I said the benediction, I went outside and greeted each and every single person. The, the reality is it was a one-man show, but for the grace of God, <laughs> it might have stayed one, except God was very gracious. You know, over a period of time, he started to bring people in. Now, he, he didn't bring in very quickly the kinds of people who could lead communion or lead corporate prayer or lead the worship or or, um, or, or or do many of the other functions which I needed to do from a pastoral perspective. But right from the beginning, God started to raise up people, even from those who were already there, and people who could come next to me in the task of, of, of taking care of the needs of the saints at Crystal Park Baptist Church. And they were a great support to what needed to be done in the context of the church. But let me say, leadership development is more than just people serving on a Sunday. It's more than just people um, pouring tea and coffee or people taking some kind of service responsibility on a Sunday. Leadership is, is really those people within the context of the local church who can exercise influence on the people around them and who can point people uh, in the same direction as what Christ is drawing you uh, as the pastor. It, it's, it's those people who can come alongside of you 
and lead others to follow toward uh, the person of Jesus Christ. So that when Paul says to the Corinthian church, imitate me as I imitate Christ, those people who become leaders next to you within the local church are the people who are saying that same message, imitate me. <laughs> we're, we're imitating Christ, follow, 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 that, that God might be glorified in this place. And those people are absolutely critical. Let's talk a little bit about the Bible, tips to uh, get the conversation started. Um, give me a couple of verses as to why we need to develop leaders within the context of the local church. What, what are the kinds of passages? You already mentioned Acts chapter 6, but what else comes to mind when you think of the development of leaders? So, obviously, I would go to, I'll start, I'll start firstly at, um, what is this, Exodus? I think it's Exodus 18. It is, 18. Yeah. So, Moses was so Moses was was doing three things at once, and as you read it, it seems like he didn't have a a, a what is this, a breakdown or a separation of duties. So Jethro asked him. Um, so he said from a little bit a little bit of con context, yeah, because some folk yeah. might not know who Jethro is, uh, and exactly. just in the context of of Exodus, obviously you've got the nation of Israel. They have left. They have Exodus. Exodus. <laughs> they have begun the exodus. They've left the the nation of Egypt. They've come out. They're heading towards the promised land. Uh, they are in the wilderness. You have Moses. He's leading God's people. And we are talking about a couple of million people strong. And Jethro is Moses's father-in-law. And he kind of like pops over for a family visit in Exodus chapter 18. Continue, brother. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Um, so, so Moses sat down from morning to evening, judging between disputes of men, also teaching God's laws and statutes. Now, when 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 Jethro heard that, he was like, "What is this?" Or when he saw that, he was like, "What is this that you're doing?" And he said, "You will weigh yourself out." <laughs> and so he said to Moses, "Look, I will advise you." Um, get able men, um, those who will deal with people in tens, in fives, and so so that you can only do this, instruct them on God's laws and statutes and in how to live, and so that everyone would leave and go home satisfied. <laughs> so now I'm thinking, um, basically, these people would come to Moses for all of these things, and People are in the queue and people are leaving without even seeing Moses because he's doing this job alone. And so basically what that does is it frees him up to do a specific task and to be to not be worn out because other people are delegated to do the judging between the speed. I thought of that and I was like, so in a church context, you have people who want counseling. Um, and so that counseling does not have to be done by the pastor because the pastor is busy with other things. There are many counselors in the church who, who have gone for counseling uh, training who will be able to counsel even members of the church. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's great, Tepo. I mean, really, Exodus chapter 18 gives us wonderful principles 
for leadership as to why we need leaders within the context of whatever organization we're in. In this case, it was the nation of Israel with um, with Moses, particularly leading the people by himself. What was the man thinking? How do you lead a million people by yourself? But Jethro, with this incredibly wise counsel in terms of principles for having leaders and for recognizing that Moses did need to lead. He needed to, to give vision. He needed to, God's people ultimately needed to be led by God's man. But, but God's man did not need to stand alone. <laughs> Moses did not need to stand out there as if he was God. You know, like kind of Superman. Uh, that that was the wrong way to go about it. But rather, um, and I guess it would have required a degree of humility from Moses. And yet Moses was the humblest man who ever lived. But it would have required a degree of of humility from Moses as he heard his father-in-law saying, you know, Moses, you need to pull back. You, you need leaders next to you over tens, hundreds and thousands, whatever it might be. Um, but these people will help you to do your task better. You know, as, as we're talking, a couple of people are, are beginning to come in on the, on the discussion. Uh, Daniel particularly says, excellent topic indeed. Generally, leadership is lacking, and a leader is meant to lead a group of people serving under him or her, not just doing all the work themselves, leading people to follow. And let other people give their inputs. And uh, yes, I mean, Daniel, that's exactly what we see in Moses. We, we see a person... Um, who has leaders joining them. Um, and then together they make a, an incredible impact uh, in terms of what they are doing. So thank you. Very well made point. Uh, and then Lestra, who clearly is a long time listener, um, which is fantastic to have you on board with us, uh, has noted that spring is here and that the plum tree blossoms and peach trees are in blossom. You're 100% right. I think last week I mentioned that the cosmos was in blossom and uh, Lester, Lester pointed out that the cosmos actually only blooms in autumn. I, I know nothing about flowers. I don't know why I even said that. Um, but it is fantastic to see trees budding. Uh, the tree outside my window has even started to bud and uh, we had a little bit of rain last week and so the grass has got a little bit of green on it and that is always an exciting time. Hey, I'd like to point us to another passage of Scripture, uh, Tepo. Uh, maybe if we just turn over to the New Testament and uh, think in terms of the mind of Paul. Um, Paul writing to 2 Timothy. Well, he's not writing to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy isn't a person. He's writing to Timothy, and it's his second epistle. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. Um, he says, You therefore, my son, oh, he's got just such a, a wonderful relationship with Timothy. I mean, in all ways, Paul has raised up this young leader, Timothy. He says, and he calls him, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me, so in, in other words, Timothy, what I have told you in the presence of many witnesses, commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And here we have a continuum, right? Uh, and again, it's a, it's a reason why we need to raise up leaders. And it's the idea of passing on the baton. You know, we've just come through the Olympics, right? Uh, and, uh, okay, I, I confess I didn't watch any of the Olympics. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not the greatest sportsman myself. And so it's kind of like not really my cup of tea, but, but, but I have seen Olympic races, particularly on YouTube, you know, like the greatest highlights or this race that was uh, just an incredible victory or whatever it might be. 
Uh, and the the relay race is always an interesting race to me. You know, like the the gun goes bang and someone starts running and they've got this baton, this this like metal uh, object in their hand, and they they run and they huff and they puff and they 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 cover I don't know a hundred meters. I'm guessing yeah, it's probably a four hundred meter relay. They cover a hundred meters, and at the hundred meter mark, there's another runner who's waiting. In actual fact, I think they used to wait, but now they start running a little bit ahead of time to get up some speed. And, and the first runner hands over the baton to the second runner, and you know, boom, the second runner's off, and they're sprinting and they're sprinting, and they cover the second hundred meters. And as they get to the the end of the second hundred meters, there's another person and they're waiting and they start, you know, huffing and puffing and jogging along and the baton gets passed over and it goes to a third person and then a fourth person and finally they cross the line and they get their wreath or they, you know, get to stand on their podium or whatever that might be. The, the point here though is that a relay is won, not by an individual, a relay is won by a team, one person after another, each giving everything that they can in order to win the race. Well, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, um, verse 2, you have a great example of a four-man relay. Paul is saying, hey, listen here, Timothy, don't forget the things that I told you. And you need to teach other men. So Paul is the first runner, Timothy is the second runner, and Timothy is to tell other men. They are the third runners. Uh, You need to make sure that you teach them to do what? To teach others also. Those would be the fourth The fourth guys in the four-man relay. Um, It's this idea of a baton being passed on from one person to the next person to the next person so that there is a continuity of ministry through the life of uh, an organization, in this case, the local church. Friends, that's one of the reasons why we need to raise up leaders, because we're not going to be here forever. Praise the Lord. Um, short of rapture, um, Jesus Christ coming again, uh, the reality is we are going to move on or die at some stage. And when that happens, you do not want your ministry, whether you are a Sunday school teacher, whether you are a youth leader, a Bible study leader, um, a head of a any ministry in the local church, whether that's like tea and coffee or a um, or a, another practical task or whether you are a pastor um, or a pastor in charge of a, a certain area in the church, you do not want that ministry to fall over and fall apart just because your 100 meter stretch is finished. Now, you, you want to make sure that you have prepared well to hand the baton on to someone else who is prepared well to hand the baton on to others also. Because the Christian life is a relay. It is not an individual sprint. I think far too often what happens is um, good men go to small churches um, and instead of recognizing that Christianity is a relational game, it is a team sport, they think it's more like a, like a, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, are there, are there sports that, a, a, a hundred meter dash where you as an individual are the only person who counts? Christianity doesn't work like that. It's far more like a game of rugby where there is an eighth man and there are 
um, uh, centers and there is a fly half and there is a full back and everybody in the team needs to be doing different things but you also need guys on the bench that are ready to come in in case somebody gets injured and you also need underneath a team like South Africa who is the greatest rugby team in the world <laughs> you can say amen to that in the comments below um, but, but but a team like South Africa also needs a massive developmental system underneath them so that in 10 years time, we've got people to replace the Sia Khaleesi's of this world um, when he's due for retirement. We, we need schoolboy rugby and we need, um, we need kind of inter-varsity rugby and we need club rugby. I played club, I played school rugby up until grade one when I broke my toe and then I played club rugby when I left school because I really wanted to get a little bit of rugby in. And I can tell you that even in a club, you need development. You, you, you need all the different age groups in order to ensure that you have continuity of players coming into the team. Well, the local church is like that. Uh, it's far more like that than a 100 meter dash where you're the lone runner and it's all on you. Pastor, when you come into a small church, your goal should be to raise up others who can raise up others also, that God might be glorified beyond your ministry into the 10th and the 11th and the 12th and the 13th year and into generations beyond that, that should the Lord tarry, there will be a witness in the community that you serve now. Hey, Tips, I want to bring you in now, uh, just in terms of that conversation. Um, yeah, uh, what are the kinds of leadership development that you see at play in a local church, either stuff that you practically see at the church where you serve or, or, or things that you've seen at other churches that work really, really well? So before that, <laughs> I don't know if we're ever going to go to Act 6, um, but uh, like there's, there's just something that I want us to, to, to see between the texts that we've looked at. Um, Exodus 18, Moses was to select able men for the task. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy is supposed to pass on the, uh, the teachings to faithful men. <laughs> and in Acts 6, um, the, they were supposed to choose men, seven men of good reputation. So so, so we, we have uh, the characteristics of the kinds of people who are selected into these leadership roles. And and when it comes to um, Act 6, these people or the, the, the deacons or the servants who were chosen here, we have, we have there in the context that there arose a complaint by Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the, in the daily distribution. Now, Upon study, you realize that the seven men or the, the names that appear there are Hellenistic Jews because now what, what happens is because their uh, people were overlooked and for that to be balanced out, they were choosing their own people to equally take care of the widows in the local church. And so, and so, even that, um, I think, I think it's 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 important for us to look at who is in leadership positions, who are we selecting, 
um, so that there is a representation of all the people in the local church. And so um, I guess that answers your question. <laughs> you said one of the things that, 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 that we are to look to or that we have seen in the terms of uh, leadership. So for instance, if you're in a multi, is it, is it multiracial, multiracial <laughs> or multi, multi, yeah, whatever. So different cultures in a church, um, you want, you want leadership to be represented by whoever is um, present in that local church. So for instance, and this is something that, that, that needs to also be taken into account that yes, we have leadership and yes, we have, let's say we've got uh, South Africans in South, in, in, in South Africa, we've got white people, we've got coloreds, we've got Indians, we've got black people in the leadership. We can't just have a dominance of um, one culture or one um, race because then that doesn't represent the the church or that doesn't represent the membership of the local church. So so those are the kinds of things that we need to take into account as we look into who we select and why they are selected. Yeah, so... I mean, I find it quite interesting as I read the book of Acts that um, that these men aren't called deacons specifically. They yeah. seem to be prototype deacons and they certainly are serving the church. But, but one thing that I, I find interesting is the election which kind of happens in this yeah. chapter, that the, the church is involved in electing uh, these men to service uh, in verse five, this proposal pleased the whole company, and so they chose uh, Stephen, uh, f- a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. A- and so, this particular selection of leaders in the local church appears to be slightly different to what we see in the book of Exodus, where we have a lone leader of God's people in the Old Testament, basically appointing uh, leaders over tens, over hundreds, and over thousands. Um, it certainly seems slightly different uh, in the book of Acts in any event, and maybe a precursor to, to what we see in other parts uh, of the scripture, that they selected their leaders. Why is that important? Well, well, that's important because it turns out that leadership development isn't just a pastoral responsibility. It's not just me as the pastor, as I arrive at Crystal Park Baptist Church, my job to find leaders and put them into positions so that I can have people next to me. No, th- this is a, this is a congregational task. This is, this is a congregational Necessity. This is something that we as the local church need. And so each and every one of us needs to pay attention to the development of leaders in our local churches. Let me also say another thing that does strike me, even before we get to that multiracial, multicultural point that you made, which I, th- I thought was a, a really good one, is I, I want to underline your point regarding the qualification of these men. In Exodus chapter 18, along with Paul's writings in the pastoral epistles, both Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see a lot of emphasis being placed, not so much on what leaders do, and the Bible talks about what leaders are to do, um, but we see emphasis placed on who the leaders are inside of them. In other words, uh, their character 
um, mustn't be below their conduct uh, in terms of how they conduct themselves in their office. It's not just that these men had the ability to speak. Uh, they spoke with golden tongues, and so therefore they became leaders. No, these men are characterized in this passage as men full with the Holy Spirit, filled with faith. Um, they are described um, more in terms of their spiritual qualifications and their character than they are in terms of you know, their ability to wait on tables. I find that fascinating. And that certainly does need to give us quite a lot of direction as we approach the topic of recognizing leaders. I am going to address that, that, that issue of multiculturalism in, in, in this book, um, in Acts chapter 6. Um, and I'm also going to bring in another text as far as that's concerned, just to underline that and to clarify uh, and quantify some of the things that you said, Tepo. Um, the, the bottom line is, the issue that has arisen in Acts chapter 6 is between two different demographics amongst the Jerusalem church. Um, those Jews who lived in Jerusalem who are called Hebraic Jews, who may very well, first language speaking, be Hebrews, Hebrew of Hebrews. And those Jews from the diaspora, those who are called Hellenistic Jews, Greek kind of Jews, those who very likely were second language um, speakers within the context of the Jerusalem church. There's a conflict between these two groups. And when it comes to appointing the leaders, the men that are selected, the seven men that are selected, um, Philip and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, and of course, Stephen, uh, who becomes the first um, uh, the first martyr of the Christian church, each one of these men, rather than bearing a Hebraic name, bears a Hellenistic name, a Greek name. And so what we have certainly implied in this text is that the church of Jerusalem decided to condescend particularly to the foreigners that were in their midst in order to resolve the conflict that they were facing in Acts chapter 6. I don't think it makes the the point specifically in this chapter uh, that there needs to be a mix of of leadership because as it turns out all the leaders in this chapter at least are Hellenistic Jews. However, there is another chapter where I think that this point in terms of diversity of leadership is made even better. And if you turn across to Acts chapter 13, we have the great city of Antioch. Now, this isn't the city of Antioch in Macedonia, uh, modern day Europe. Uh, this is the city of Antioch in uh, Syria. Uh, and um, it is one of the largest cities in the world um, at this stage. And a church has been planted in the city. This becomes Paul's sending city. It is an incredibly important church uh, in the book of Acts. After the Jerusalem church, this becomes the center of the Christian world. And the leaders of this church, uh, this very cosmopolitan city, the leaders of this church are actually named uh, at the beginning of Acts chapter 13. And the, the writer, Luke, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, seems to be kind of underlining and making the point that this was a diverse group of leaders. It says, now in the church of Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, 
who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menanan, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As you go through that list of names, you, you have a Pharisee, <laughs> a Hebrew of Hebrews, Saul, listed last. You, you have Barnabas, um, who is that great encourager who came from Jerusalem. You have Simeon, who's called Niger, which either means that he is from Africa or that he is actually African, which of course excites us from South Africa, no end. Um, and you have this man named uh, Lucius from Cyrene, a completely different place, again, uh, an African city, and Menaean, a close friend of Herod the Tetrarch, somebody born uh, from the aristocracy. I, I mean, this is a very diverse cosmopolitan group of leaders serving a very diverse probably very cosmopolitan um, church, a church which is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, and a leadership which is made up of a diversity of, of people. Uh, look, we've come to the end of the first hour of the show. Um, uh, we, we're going to take a, a song break at this stage. We're going to come back and we're going to hear a couple, of, um, a couple of comments from Williams, from Glynn, and from Bree. Uh, in the second hour of the show, we're going to continue to talk about leadership development. Uh, the first song that we heard at the beginning of the show was Faithful One, which was sung by Marissa uh, Ferhey. Uh, the second song that we're going to be listening to now is Hungry For You, sung by Oliver uh, Tour and uh, Rina Nell. Uh, we look forward to listening together with you and to chatting to you after the break. Well, folk, it's great to be back for a second hour of Table Talk with Mark. This morning, myself and Tepo Pitzel are talking about leadership development within the context of the local church. Um, and I really want to get quite practical now. I want to talk about uh, some of the the more practical elements of developing leaders uh, in a local church. So, so let me just say this as a general principle, which I would hold to. Leadership is a gift. It's given by the Holy Spirit, like gifts of administration, like gifts of teaching, like gifts of service, like gifts of generosity. One of the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to his church is the gift of leadership. Um, I believe that the gifts are as diverse as a fingerprint, uh, uh, the human fingerprint is. Each and every single one of us has a unique fingerprint. And so our gifts that are given by the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, sovereignly given to the Holy Spirit, to each and every individual member of a local church are very unique. And one of those gifts is leadership. And so as a pastor, I, I want to find those people who have been gifted by the Holy Spirit to lead in the local church so that they can do exactly that. They can start to lead. But here's the thing with the gifts. Just because something is a gift doesn't mean uh, that, that therefore, and if you don't have the gift of leadership, you will never lead. The gifts don't work like that. Think of the gift of service, right? Uh, the gift of service is a gift. People get the divine gift of the Holy Spirit, and and then as they serve, their service is kind of like um, used. It is fueled by the Holy Spirit Himself. But here's the thing: 
all of us are commanded to serve in God's word. We to serve one another, we, we to serve to the glory of God. It, it is a command, it's not just a gifting that certain individuals do, it's a command that all of us are to do. And then in the local church, some people who serve according to that command, some people who are gifted uh, according to the spiritual gift, they might be recognized as recognized servants in the local church. They, we might call them deacons, diakonos, uh, which really means servant, uh, minister. Uh, I think leadership works like that as well. On the one hand, I, I do believe that, that leadership is a gift. It's given by the Holy Spirit, that some people are peculiarly, some people are peculiar, that is true, but some people are peculiarly gifted um, to lead in the local church. But friends, whilst some people are gifted, all of us lead to one degree or another. I mean, those of you who are moms, uh, you are leading your children each and every day. They look at you and you exercise influence over them. Uh, you help them, you encourage them, you move them toward godliness, you prepare them for life. You are leading in the place that God has placed you. Um, husbands are leading wives. Fathers are leading children. Uh, within the context of the local church, uh, you can't say that a Bible study leader isn't leading. The, the reality is you don't have to be a recognized leader in the local church, an elder of a local church, in order to exercise the role of leadership within the context of a local church, uh, or even necessarily have the gift of leadership, uh, which the Holy Spirit might have given you. The, the bottom line is leadership sits at all kinds of tiers within the organized organism of the local church. And when we recognize that, it really does help us because, because it, it helps us to recognize that I might need to lead where God has placed me. I, I don't necessarily need to be the guy at the top of the stack. Um, uh, or in reality, in a, in a local church environment, if it's the pastor, it's an inverted stack, right? The, the servant at the bottom of the stack uh, in order to lead. I, I don't need to be called pastor in order to exercise the gift of leadership or the position of, or, or the, the role of leadership within the context of a local church. And that might liberate some of the folk that are even listening today to recognize that God has called you to glorify him precisely where he has placed you right now. <laughs> so if you are a leader, never mind what that role is, lead well and glorify God in what he has given you. Th that would be a principle that, that, that I would hold to as I approach this conversation of leadership. Uh, the second thing is, is just this idea of plurality in scripture. We see it over and over again. We saw it in the Old Testament in terms of Moses and this need to bring people alongside him. We definitely see it in the New Testament. New Testament leadership is plural leadership, whether it be the elders of a church um, or whether it be missionaries going out two by two. The bottom line is God seems to like us doing things together. <laughs> that church life is a team sport in every way. And so as far as we possibly can, we ought to promote um, teaming within the context of the local church. And if you promote it at the lowest rungs, the lowest possible rungs of leadership within the organization, the organized organism, it will naturally rise to whatever other forms of leadership um, are expressed within the context of the church. There's a third thing that I want to say about leadership, and that is uh, you need to create opportunities if you are a pastor of a local church, opportunities for leaders to lead. The bottom line is people can't, it is very difficult to lead 
uh, in a way which is positive if opportunities aren't created for you to exercise that role in one degree or another. Uh, you can lead negatively. Uh, I think when opportunities aren't created for leaders to lead, often then the, the, the partnership becomes antagonistic. You know, natural leaders start to start to fight for control and then things become a mess. And you can't tell me that you've never seen that in a local church where, where you have little kingdoms or, 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 or kind of like antagonistic relationships between those who should be leading God's people. I want to go through a couple of examples of the kinds of opportunities that you can create uh, in order to create opportunities for people to lead, for them to be recognized by the local church, and so that you can create that kind of developmental path um, that people can take um, in order to grow in the ability to lead and also create opportunities uh, in your local church for future elders. So one of the things that we did at Crystal Park Baptist Church was we looked at our Sunday service and we started to identify the key elements of what made biblical worship biblical, whether that be singing God's word, praying God's word, um, uh, saying God's word in terms of uh, um, uh, reading God's word, whether that be putting the, commun the communion on display so people could see God's word, um, we started to look at all of those kinds of things because sometimes when we think of the of the the service on a Sunday, we think that the only places, the only leadership opportunities that we can give people uh, is the pulpit. You know, that will be their first opportunity to put a person who desires to lead in one way or another. The first opportunity will be the pulpit, and I would say no. I think that there that there is a natural progression that people ought to take. So the public reading of scripture would be possibly the first rung on that ladder as I think of it right now. Um, the public reading of scripture would be a scripture is read before it is proclaimed to God's people. We, we read God's word. We try and read portions of God's word, a chapter. Uh, this Sunday, we start a new series at Crystal Park Baptist Church. We're going to be looking at the book of Jude. I'm going to be preaching from verse 1 to verse 4. But before I start proclaiming God's word from the pulpit, verse 1 to 4, um, someone, maybe it's Sandile this week, maybe it's Werner, maybe it is uh, Chris, or maybe it is Alex. Uh, we've got about seven people who are designated public scripture readers at Crystal Park Baptist Church. One of those people will come up and they will open God's word and they will announce to the church, this is the public reading of scripture. And then they will read from the book of Jude. And that creates opportunities for people to demonstrate excellence and to lead God's people in a function on a Sunday. I would say that's kind of maybe the lowest rung uh, in terms of participation in the Sunday service, uh, because whilst it requires quite a lot of preparation, each one of those people are reading the text over and over again, and it requires excellence. I mean, they're pre practicing uh, elocution, uh, pronunciation, Annunciation, uh, all those fancy things, uh, they're going to try and read it with absolute excellence. Um, the bottom line is it, it doesn't require a, um, a, a spiritual uh, addition, you know, an explanation of God's word or, or an application of God's word. And so that becomes a great initial rung for people. I'd say maybe a step up from that uh, would be a, ma a man who you ask, um, after they've read scripture for a couple of months, um, who you ask to lead the communion on a Sunday. 
a communion is a wonderful opportunity. And at Crystal Park Baptist Church, for the longest time, communion was always um, conducted by the pastor who oversaw the, 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 the sheep. And I can understand how some churches um, might, might do that. But if you've got people who are qualified uh, in your church to open God's word, understand God's word, interpret God's word, apply God's word, well, then give them the opportunity to take five minutes in the service to go to a particular passage of scripture which relates to the person of Jesus Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross and to open that scripture, read that scripture and make the main point uh, over a period of five minutes uh, so that the elements can be conducted in a worthy way. This also gives you the opportunity to put uh, Bible study leaders or, or future preachers are on display to the church so that they become used to seeing this person in a role of, of leading them in terms of spiritual worship. I'd say maybe another rung up uh, from that is the public um, prayer, um, the pastoral prayer. Now, pastoral prayer is really tricky. It's, it's not easy to pray well publicly. Um, it requires a person who has a deep spiritual walk with the Lord. It requires a person who's willing to put in a number of hours uh, into preparing a prepared prayer that, that they can use to lead all of God's people during corporate worship. Uh, they need to find out what the current prayer needs are for the church, for the community. Um, they, they need to make sure that their prayers are biblically focused and God-glorifying. Uh, they need to make sure that they they say their, their prayers in a way that can be understood. Uh, this requires a person who's you know, maybe just preparing for eldership, a, a person who is a highly visible, um, clear leader, spiritual leader within the local church, uh, if not the pastor themselves. Um, but this would become another opportunity for people to pray. So at Crystal Park Baptist Church, we, we have two communion leaders, or three actually. We have Jake Msimango, we have Sandile Mazibuko, and we have Craig Dadi. Um, in terms of corporate prayer, we have Christoph Hursen, we have uh, Chris Scott. Um, and then maybe another level of leadership that can be on display on a Sunday in a local church is a worship leader. At Crystal Park, we have four worship leaders. Um, uh, and you might have thought that the worship leader was just like leading songs, uh, put them further down. But in reality, what they are doing is they are taking the combined singing and joy and prayer of the entire church and they are raising them uh, up to God. You want to make sure that these people are really key. You want to make sure that everybody's standing at the front of the church on a Sunday matches the kinds of criteria that we spoke about in Exodus chapter 18, along with 1 Timothy chapter 3 and uh, Titus and uh, Acts chapter 6, that these are people filled with the Spirit, that these are people above repute, that these are people who can really say, thus saith the Lord to the people of God and take them along as in high worship and praise to God. And then finally, you come to the pulpit. Uh, the pulpit is another great opportunity to raise up leaders amongst the church. These would be people that are able to rightly divide the word of God. At Crystal Park Baptist Church, we have five men who are uh, approved as preachers in the church. We have myself, we have Etienne de Toy, we have um, Craig Didu, um, we have Tepo Pitzel, we have Richard Raphael. And then we have a couple of other men who from time to time will join that preaching team, maybe once a year or once every second year join the preaching team. A, a person like Warren Scott comes to mind. 
The bottom line is you don't want to rush people uh, into preaching. You want preaching to be kind of like the final step uh, in that presenting a person to the local church. And, and you want lots of small steps in between, whether that be corporate praying, whether that be leading worship, whether that be communion, whether that be reading scripture publicly and other ways that you can get people involved in, in terms of a recognized leadership uh, potential uh, during the worship service. Now that's just during the worship service. I think we can now start to talk about things like Bible studies and, and leading committees or leading departments in the church and practical service items in the church as well. But before we carry on, uh, as I ask him to unmute his mic, I'm going to bring uh, Tepo into the conversation. You see, I preempted that. I could see <laughs> that your mic was muted and that you were going to forget. But let, let's bring Temple into the conversation. Brother, we're talking about creating opportunities for leadership development within the local church. I, I went straight to the Sunday worship service. Uh, what are some of the things that you've seen working well or some of the other areas that you might talk about in terms of opportunities for people um, to be brought into leadership roles within a local church? So... Um Okay, let, let me first say how, how I was introduced to developing leaders. Um, so obviously, firstly, you, 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 you make known the, um, the ministries that are open for people to join. And then from there, you sort of watch the excellence um, that the people perform these tasks um, with. And then also, you, you listen to the congregation um, as to whose name comes up mostly, like, oh, have you seen how this person serves well? Like, for instance, I, I look at door greeting, which is um, a a what is this a ministry I had, and I've sort of recognized a person who is always in front, um, who's always making sure that this happens and that when they serve, they serve with their whole heart, right? And beyond that, um, I've seen how people would arrive early, like intentionally, and ask for things to do on, on, on a Sunday morning. And so those are the kinds of people that you keep your eye on because we want mm. servant leaders. Um, so so, so they, they, they offer up themselves to, to do these tasks. So yeah, um, also just, going through membership um, lessons with incoming members. So from there, so they're like, which ministry can I go into? I'm like, just avail yourself um, because yeah. maybe they don't know what the gifts are in a particular moment. Avail yourself for different ministries and there we'll be able to identify, okay, maybe, maybe do this or do that. And eventually you may find where you can serve. Yeah. You know, Tipple, brilliant, brilliant input, like really, really good. Uh, I just want to underline a couple of things that you said. One is, you know, Crystal Park, if you had to go to our website and you had to click on the members section, which is the grow section, there's a section there which says start serving. If you clicked on that, uh, bottom line is 
a, a myriad, maybe 50 different places that people can serve at Crystal Park Baptist Church would be presented to you. Um, because ultimately we want people to serve because as they serve, they are then recognized by the people around them. And as they are recognized, um, so they become increasingly useful and leaders are found in the midst of service. We, we don't recognize people to leadership for their potential. We recognize them because they are working hard in the various different roles and glorifying God in the various different roles in which they were found. So that was a that was a really, really good point, Tepo. Thank you very much for making it. The, the other thing which I which I just wanted to address, particularly from a pastoral perspective, uh, in terms of what you spoke about was you take responsibility amongst like a million other things. You do so much in the life of the church. But one of the things that you take responsibility is for door greeting. And that's because ultimately you've taken responsibility for the the, the uh, kind of capturing uh, new people and bringing them into the life of the church. So you, you take care of, of that entire continuum. But the reason why I, I raise door greeting is because if you want people to lead past a friend, you need to step back and let them make one or two mistakes of their own. People learn from mistakes. And so, I mean, just like, like really practically, and Tepo, I'm not burning you as I say this because you're doing such an incredible job and I tell, tell that to people behind your back. But when you started door greeting, you didn't do it exactly like I wanted you to do it. You know, like like I, I was like, oh no, I, I, I want people to arrive earlier or or I want them to, to go through this process. And then when you started printing out the, the rosters, all of a sudden I saw the, the incredible value of letting you A, make a couple of mistakes, but B, own that area yourself. Because you came up with ideas I hadn't even thought of. You know, all of a sudden, the 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 the, the names of the people that might be attending the church uh, were divided into different uh, um, alphabetical lines, and you sped up the way that people were coming in. The the bottom line is because you made one or two mistakes, you got to own the ministry, and the ministry worked out way better than I'd ever envisaged it. Um, Pastor friend, if you want people to develop into the role of leaders, sometimes you have to stand back and let them um, and let them make mistakes, even let them fail so that they can find uh, where their true gifting lies. Um, that, that, that's a, a useful a useful note to make. I just want to bring in a couple of comments at this stage. Glenn Williams, long-time listener and friend, excellent man from Macanio Theological College, if you're looking for a place to study, uh, that should be an option, says one of the issues I frequently come across is men who are good leaders with all those necessary skills but are extremely biblically illiterate. And, and you know, Glenn, well done on raising that. One of the things that you do need to do, Pastor Friend, is even as you create these opportunities for people to serve within the life of the church so that you can identify future leaders within the context of your congregation, is as a simultaneous route, you need to teach them the, the deep truths of the faith so that they can hold on to them vigorously and so that you don't just have leaders like a, a business committee or you know folk who are good at making decisions, but that you have those people who love Jesus and who are able to promote the things of the gospel uh, amongst the people of God. That is so, so very important. Well done, Glenn, for raising that. Teresa, another long-time listener, and a Benonian says, greetings all, hope you are well. Would like to confirm for a friend, 
which is Teresa's way of saying, I want to know. <laughs> um, so leadership has nothing to do with having miraculous powers, being anointed or laying hands on members, just like Moses did with Joshua, right? What should happen if I'm in a church where family is just in leadership and it has been said that God told them that it has to be that way. What should churches do if members simply don't want to take on leadership positions? That's three questions, Teresa. You're like cheating, brother. <laughs> like one question at a time. But those are all brilliant. So uh, let, let's bring them in. And uh, and Teppo, uh, maybe you want to deal with the first one. The question is, so leadership has nothing to do with having miraculous powers, like being anointed or laying on the hands of members, just like Moses did with Joshua, right? With a question mark after it. And uh, Teresa was asking for a friend. Over to you. Um, um, so, so, so that sounds more like a statement <laughs> than a question. So, yes, I think, I think leadership has to do with do you say spiritual powers? <laughs> so you're looking for you're looking for the ability and the availability and the capability <laughs> of the person um, in, in 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 like the person that you are selecting. So ability, availability, and capability. So basically, it's like when you select the person, are they able to carry the task? Oh, there's something else I I didn't mention reliability (laughs) so so can you rely on the person um is the person capable and able to carry out the task that they've been set to are they available i mean it makes no sense to select a leader who's coming to church once in two months yeah so it's not about having like a miraculous super duper power we're not looking for superman yeah what we're looking for is those capable reliable people who will ultimately shepherd God's people and glorify God as they go about serving them. You know, that that issue of reliability is such an important one. Uh, Too often, we're too quick in putting people into leadership positions, whether that be small leadership roles or big leadership roles, um, before we give them the opportunity to demonstrate their reliability. Um, it, it is no use having six deacons on a deacon's board when in actual fact five of them do nothing. <laughs> you would be better off just having one person recognized as a recognized servant before the church than having a whole lot of people who really are rubbish at what they do. It's just the title and a badge that reliability is excellent. And, and reliability, not just at the things that they like, but reliability in all areas of Christian life, whether that be uh, attendance of church, should be a gateway requirement for those who will be leaders in a local church. Do they actually come to church on Sundays faithfully with their family? Um, And then reliability in terms of do they do the tasks which are allotted to them? Sometimes the tasks that they want to do and sometimes the tasks which they have to do because you need people to do stuff. Um, how do they serve? Do they serve with willing hearts or do they serve begrudgingly? There's nothing worse than having a set of begrudging leaders. Teresa's second question was, um, what should happen if I am in a church where family is just in leadership? <laughs> the pastor is a leader. His wife is Mama Ruti, the first lady. Um, his <laughs> son is the only other elder. Uh, his other son is the worship leader and uh, the, the 
captain of the deacon's board. What should happen if I'm in a church like this? Or even worse, if they say that God told them that it has to be that way. Well, well, let me just say, I I am sensitive that when churches are small, sometimes the people who are best equipped to lead and who are most bought in to what is happening in the local church is the church family. Sorry, is the pastoring family. But friends and pastor friends, listen carefully. If you want your church to grow, you cannot be nepotistic as you go about allocating <laughs> leadership opportunities. You really can't. Um, you, you need to create opportunities for others to serve and serve alongside you. Uh, you. You can't be the pastor and your wife the only elder or your son the only other elder and, and that is the um, transitional uh, succession plan <laughs> for your church community. And if you are telling people that God told you to do it, you're just lying through your teeth. <laughs> and that's not helpful at all. And so repent from no, no, no. that, turn away from that, and ultimately start to look at the people which God has provided for you, um, that you might exalt Him uh, as you have a plurality of God-glorifying leadership within the local church. Was that a little bit strong, Tepo? No, that was that was a bit weak. So I, I I need to say this. I think that's more run as a business, a family business. That's to secure the 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 money or the finances of the family. I mean, yeah. I see no other reason for running the church that. And, and and if we're going to be strong, let me say this. Tepo says that he sees no other reason for running the church other than this. I, I would say that's the kind of church you need to run away from. Um, the yeah. bottom line is that kind of dominant leadership is not God-glorifying, and it is highly unlikely that you are going to grow spiritually healthy in an environment which is not spiritually healthy. Um, yeah. you, you need to at least be looking around to see if there are spiritually vibrant churches around you where biblical leadership is demonstrated as one of the marks of a healthy church. Uh, Teresa's last question is, what should churches do if members simply don't want to take on leadership positions? Well, brother, that's why churches are given pastors. It is the pastoral role to teach. So that's where you're going to start. Like nobody wants to serve. I I get that. I've experienced that to at least one degree or another, even in my own pastorate at times. And so that's why God gave you as a pastor to the church. You you need to teach the flock. Then you need to demonstrate sacrificial leadership and servant leadership to the flock. To the flock. Not the flock. They would be weird. To the flock. (laughs) And then after, after you have taught and after you have demonstrated, you might need to exhort the flock. (laughs) <laughs> to start to serve in God-glorifying ways. You might even need to rebuke the flock. The, the bottom line is, that's what pastoring is all about. Uh, I spent the last week preparing for a congregational meeting that we had on Sunday. One of the tasks that I did was phone at least 75% of the members of the church. And then this week, I, I've spent some time engaging with the other 25% I didn't get around to. Um, and as I've engaged with a couple of people, I've called some folk back to church. Like, hey, man, I haven't seen you in a year. And I get that we're in the middle of a pandemic, 
But I'm not 100% sure that you're not coming to church because you're concerned about your health anymore because, you know, I keep on bumping into you at the shops. And I know you're going to work and sports events and, you know, watching South African rugby matches at the pub down the street. Um, and a lot of what I'm saying is tongue-in-cheek. But what I'm saying is, like, you know, part of the pastoral role is exhorting and rebuking and calling people back. Other people, uh, it's not about church attendance. It's about Hey man, I, I've got I've got hopes for you and dreams for you. Uh, you've got so much potential, um, but how can we possibly use you unless you step up to the plate and, and begin batting like well, you know, uh, enter into the competition. This is a team sport. You're on a team. Well, you need to take your place uh, in the starting lineup if you actually want to play the game. Um, you know, so those kinds of conversations, those pastoral conversations, and sometimes they're incredibly awkward, are conversations that you have to have because you're the pastor, brother. And as an under-shepherd of the great shepherd, that is part of the calling. Tepo, yeah. any, other, yeah. any other, I don't know, um, words yeah. of wisdom, nuggets of gold to add? Yeah, so, so basically... Um, well, Ephesians four eleven says, "And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, oh, some pastors, and people to equip the saints, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ, until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature me- uh, measured by Christ's fullness." So. It is the pastor's um, job to teach the members, and it is his job to equip the members for the work of ministry. And as you look at that, it's it's towards maturity. It's towards um, it's towards this goal that um, we are all supposed to reach. So if the pastor is only doing his job, then what then about the members? And the the other benefits as well for this is that is a practice of the priest of all believers this is not a one-man show um, the 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 church definitely the members need to be rebuked yeah well done Tepo that's absolutely excellent because that, that really is another governing principle in terms of leadership development this your role as pastor is to is to really create opportunities for people to serve God's people and God himself within the context of the local church. Um, and, and this needs to be an intentional task. You know, sometimes we give far too much focus to the fivefold ministries at the beginning of that passage, um, which is really just a fourfold ministry because um, uh, it's pastor teacher rather than pastor and teachers. Um, so it's uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teacher. Um, but, but we sometimes give too much attention to the fourfold ministries and not enough attention to the task which they are to be set uh, to. And the task that they're to be set to really uh, is equipping the saints to the work of the ministry. If you spend all of your time, Pastor Friend, doing all the ministry in the church, it might be that you have a bit of a pride problem, that, that you actually think you are God's gift to the church and you are the only way that things will get done. Well, that's not actually your job. Your job is to make sure that things get done. But as far as possible, you need to raise others up in order to get it because that is your primary gifting, your primary calling, your primary task. A very, very well-made point, uh, Tepo. Really, really like it. Brother, as we as we think of leadership development, um, 
I guess there are some pitfalls that we can fall into. We can be too pragmatic as we go about the task. And because this is an, an important and an urgent task, right? It's important in that a church which is firmly established is going to have a plurality of elders. It's going to have a multiplicity of diverse leadership within the context uh, of that local church. So it's an important task. And it is urgent because let's face it, it's very seldom in a local church that there are enough leaders like just kind of hanging around. Um, so, so it becomes with a sense of urgency that most pastors need to engage in this. So whilst the, whilst the, the task is both important and urgent, it's not a prag, it's not purely a pragmatic task. And that's one of the pitfalls I guess we can fall into. Yeah. Um, how do we guard against pragmatism as we approach leadership and leadership development? So firstly, I think as, as I was preparing this, um, in terms of uh, developing leaders, I think one thing that we didn't mention as well is leaders continue to improve. Because um, to, 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 to which, um, wait, I'm trying to quote Luke 18, is Luke 18 or 24? Um, to whom much is given, much will be required. So here's, here's, here's basically what I'm thinking. If you stick up your hand and say, I am giving myself up to this task and I want to serve the church in this, um, in that specific ministry, there'll be, let's say, five people who approach you. So now your responsibility increases. But how do we prepare a person who does that is we don't just give them the task we give them material to read we give them um, uh, what is this books to help them in that ministry grow in that ministry because firstly how do you practice something that you do not know theoretically so let's get to what does the Bible say your ministry looks like and then get to how it looks in practice Otherwise, there'll be a lot of blunders. Mm, yeah. So I, I guess that puts quite a lot of onus on the pastor. I, if you want, if you want to develop these kinds of roles, these kinds of of people, if you want to, if you want to create opportunities for people to to minister well within the context of the local church, so that you can create the kind of leadership pipeline that we're talking about, you're going to need to put in the hard yards of really defining the kinds of roles that people might yeah. do. Um, and then sometimes when people come in and they have giftings that you did not anticipate, or they can serve in roles that you did not plan for, uh, you need to put in the, the hard yards of getting ready to equip them to whatever God has called them to. Uh, that's part of the role. Yeah, well done. And 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 tips. I guess you know, in terms of that that pragmatic question that I was asking, just the just the danger of of looking for people who have a certain worldly quality of leadership, and then naturally assuming that that is going to translate well into the church, um, or people who you don't think of as as the quintessential leaders in the world, and then thinking that they can't lead within the context of the local church. The, the reality is church leadership doesn't always work like worldly leadership works. Uh, and if we are too pragmatic, 
uh, about these matters, uh, we can sometimes miss a person who is a gift to the local church, and other times we can elevate a person who's going to be a hindrance to the local church. Uh, I mean, the, the, a great example of that would be a person who is a high-powered businessman, maybe, and uh, and in all, for all intensive purposes matches the criteria of worldly leadership, but in truth, because of a character misqualification, <laughs> a character default, um, which makes him really good at worldly leadership, uh, you know, maybe they are. Um, uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of walk on top of people or whatever it might be, and that's how they've risen to prominence uh, in the world. Um, actually, disqualifies them from spiritual leadership within the context of the local church. Um, and then also, just sometimes, a person who is quiet, contemplative, uh, the kind of person who who isn't a high A personality type, but rather is a thinker, a person who's quiet and considerate sometimes makes an amazing contribution to a church leadership team, the kind of person who can pull back uh, the folk that just want to run like wild horses, can pull them back and, and can say, you know, hang on, guys, let, let, let's, just, let's just come back to God's word. Let's think about this. Let's pray about this. Uh, just in terms of my, my own ministry, a, a person who certainly fits that mold, that model would be a Craig Didi, uh, who I absolutely love and have so much respect for. And yet Craig himself is a relatively quiet and unassuming man, humble by nature, uh, and yet a gifted leader within the context of the local church. Anything to add, Tips? We've got like 10 minutes um, in closing, so no, there might be a couple of things that you want to get through, bullet through, uh, in order to make sure that we don't miss anything out in terms of this conversation. Yeah, so I, I also do think that, well, I believe that every church should have the philosophy of every member ministry, because here's, here's, here's the benefit as well uh, for that. Whenever we have... Um, people who are serving in more than one capacity or more than one ministry, we sort of, we sort of um, see that one of the ministries may be lacking in terms of um, how much they pour themselves out into. So if a person, let's say, for instance, if a person is gifted in a particular um, ministry, then let them serve to their fullness or to their full capacity in that ministry, get somebody else for this one, because now they dividing themselves and not um, producing the excellence that they could have, or that somebody else could have stepped into had they given that to somebody else. So it's also that you get a few people, um, uh, what is this, committing themselves to too many ministries, and therefore some ministries suffer because mm. they aren't able to do all of that. And then also. Well, well, hang on, just just on that, uh, you know, very often uh, we talk about the 80-20 principle where 80% of the work is done by 20% of the people in the local church. Now, that hasn't been my experience at Crystal Park Baptist Church, but I do know that a number of my pastor friends complain about that, that there's a very small pool of people that do a whole lot of the work in the local church. Uh, and 
that is dangerous. Um, it, it is the opposite of every member ministry. Uh, we really do need to create spaces for people to serve and serve in their areas of giftingness. And maybe just from a from a point of, of wisdom and from a point of pastoral care, one of the roles of pastors is also to ask some folk to dial back. There, there's a danger um, in some personality types of wanting to do everything, <laughs> like literally take responsibility for everything in the local church. And often these people are incredibly gifted. Uh, just God has given them uh, energy and amazing abilities. Um, and and we can celebrate them till the cows come home. But what we can't do is allow them to do everything because sometimes that means that other folk don't have places to minister um, and can't minister as they are called. And so that becomes an area of pastoral wisdom and pastoral care um, as you sometimes need to ask people to dial back. Other folk are, are so zealous and so passionate about their local church. They want to be involved in everything, but they do it at the expense of their souls. Maybe they do it at the expense of their own personal devotion or building relationships with their own family um, or um, the care of ministries outside of the local church. And so for some folk, you also need to say, dial back. You, you don't want to turn into kind of a a shooting star or comet that that flies across the night sky and then disappears into the into the nether um, because uh, you've burnt yourself out. Uh, the, 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 this idea of every person ministry sometimes requires pastoral pastors to to pull people back for their own good. Sorry, Tips, you had uh, one last point there. You think I, I still remember that point? But yeah, <laughs> I, so so basically, when it comes to when it comes to ministry, you have to free up, like get one person do one thing at least. Um, but yeah, and oh yes, this is what I wanted to say. You'll find that maybe let's say some ministries are advertised in the church, but no, like other members would not stick up their hands. But because other members who are already involved in certain ministries. Um, see that there's a need <laughs> they are the mm. ones who would usually put out their hands and so I think again rebuke is needed um, and yeah like we need we need to be constantly teaching our members yeah and, and, and I mean just on that point often those who love the church I mean just a genuine love for the church and because of their personal involvement know the needs of the church and their desires to step in and serve um, and so it, it's it's very difficult not to use those folk for as much as you possibly can and yet for the yeah. good of the church you really do need to nurture a, a, a wider pool one of the ways that we do that at Crystal Park Baptist Church is once a month we create mm -hmm. a duty list of all the various different roles in the church and we assign members to various different activities that are happening through the church and we keep a list of all the members and across the top all the various different roles in the church and, and we tick off who's doing what in the church and we keep a list of of two percentages one is the percentage of member involvement which at crystal park baptist church right now um, is sitting at 60%. I think before lockdown, it was slightly higher than that. And then the second percentage that we keep involved in is a percentage of people that are involved in more than one task. 
um, so that we can get an idea uh, just that we, we're not creating opportunities for that 20% to do 80% of the work. And so at Crystal Park Baptist Church right now, um, that number is sitting at 13%. So 13% of our members are doing more than one thing and over 60% of our members have at least one thing that they are doing during the course of any given month. The advantages of keeping an eye on those two numbers is the higher your member percentage of service is going, uh, the more involved your members are. And then naturally, in terms of the pipeline toward leadership, the more likely leaders will be to be identified. And then as the percentage of people that are doing more than one thing, as that number goes down, and you're kind of aiming in terms of the one number for, for above 75, 80%, uh, that would be like a very, very healthy church. Um, but 65 to 70%, I, I think, is where a healthy church would sit. But in terms of uh, members doing more than one task, you want to keep that number below 20%. I think that's an indication of, of health. But as soon as you hit below 10%, you certainly are heading in, in the right direction. Um, as we come to the end of this topic, as we come to the end of this conversation in terms of leadership development within the context of the local church, I, I do want to again just point to um, the importance of this both if you're a pastor listening in for your own health and if you're a member listening in for your own spiritual vitality and well-being. Uh, the bottom line is we want to develop uh, leaders and you want to be developed in terms of this leadership skill and for some of you, this leadership gifting uh, in your life. Uh, beyond that, uh, it is also not just important but, but also urgent. Uh, the truth is that there is a dearth of leadership uh, across all spheres uh, within society at the moment. It's a worldwide problem, really, and certainly is a problem in South Africa. Uh, we urgently need leaders, and so we need to be intentional as we go about uh, the um, as we go about raising and developing those who would serve as leaders in our congregation. We're looking for a a diverse group of highly skilled people who love Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior to serve local churches all over South Africa that he might be glorified in and through their ministries. Friends, that brings our time to an end. Our prayers go out to all the elders and to the deacons who hold the line in local churches, as well as our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. And prayers and much respect go to first responders, to police, our defense force, and to those who dispense justice uh, within South Africa, uh, to firefighters and paramedics and our nation's nurses and medical personnel, the, the heroes uh, that work day to day, as well as correctional facility officers uh, who serve in our country's prisons. You've been listening to Table Talk with me, your host, Mark along with Teppo Pitzel. We're going to be going to the news shortly. And so until next week, Friday, walk wisely, live holy, and testify zealously. God bless.